Welcome to this amazing, mind-blowing podcast. You are listening to Haunting the Studio, a podcast about horror, the ways it crosses media, and the borderland where fiction and reality melt. Join us as we, your hosts Tyler and Andy, plunge into nightmares both real and imagined to understand how the different presentations of horror work in different ways and perhaps gain some insight into why we scare ourselves. For today's episode, we're scaling things back. Not covering an entire franchise or the oeuvre of an artist or a painter, but instead covering a single album. That is Macabre's 1993 Sinister Slaughter. I feel like we're getting back to the old days with this one. I feel like we're back on the radio, about to listen to something a little bit fucked. Maybe not too much. We're going to discuss it. We're going to let it wash over us. We're going to get the feeling for it. How are you feeling, Andy? you feeling ready to get back into the old ways? I feel like I'm going back to my roots. Mm. Traveling back to the whānau I fuck a papa to. Yeah, traveling back uh, to the distant past of a, a, about 12 months ago. Yeah, yeah, thinking like, we used to do this weekly. Mm. God, that was genuinely a lot of work. It was a lot of work. It was also a hell of a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I have books upon books of show notes. Yeah. Yeah. I have not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have, I think all of the like show notes and whatnot together would actually almost be enough to be like a short novel. It's, yeah. it's legit like books and books of it. Yeah. You could basically like publish a whole thesis. Mm. I missed um, my calling. I could have done my undergrad and, and my postgrad stuff all in the media studies department and just focused on horror and, and metal and done cool shit with my life. But well, hey, you're doing cool shit with it now. Uh, I suppose that's a point. Yeah. Yeah. I suppose I don't need one of those fancy degrees on the wall. I mean, I've got... I do have them. You have two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, come on, like, fuck you. <laughs> fuck you, Academy. I can do it by myself. Yeah. Don't need no fancy book learning. Yeah, honestly. It doesn't my- matter that I already have it. <laughs> and I already have the... I think I'm still about 50 to 60 grand in debt, but... Oh, yeah, yeah. My degree's still in the envelope it got sent in. <laughs> and my student debt's over 100,000. <laughs> ah. Well, and you got a high score, you know. I you crossed, you crossed the magic score. mark. No, I didn't get a high score, but I do have a lot of hours mm. clocked in. As I got the achievement for basically playing Lucius for <laughs> seven years straight. <sighs> I can't believe I actually went ahead and got that achievement. It's an impressive feat, though. It wasn't really. I just left it running in the background while I did other things. Yeah, just, but it's impressive that your computer didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose that's a point. We should focus on the album itself that we're doing. Macabre are a fascinatingly bizarre band. They have a name for their own genre of music. They really don't fit with any other band in existence. They have such a singular focus in terms of what they want to write about, what they want to make music about. To the point where you could almost consider them a novelty act. Almost, but they're just too out there. They transcend a point where it can't really be considered a novelty act anymore because who is the novelty act for? Yeah. Who is the novelty appealing to? 
it's appealing to <laughs> people like us. It's appealing, yeah, it's that, appealing to us. Yeah, you know, I think we've cock-teased enough. Tell them what the album's about. Well, not just the album, but the entire band. Macabre is dedicated to murder. It is a band solely and entirely revolving around the acts of serial killers, murderers, and spree killers. And to present this singular obsession, they have developed one of the strangest sounds in the extreme metal world. They're not quite thrash metal, they're not quite death metal, and they're not quite grindcore. They're a little bit of all three, but they're also carnival music and nursery rhymes (laughs) and folk ballads. They're a lot. This album that we're talking about, Sinister Slaughter, is their second full-length album. I picked it because I think it's probably one of the albums that best encapsulates the sound of the band, although you can kind of go to any album they released and get that. This one was also their first major release because they had not only an album before this, but I'll leave an EP or two. Uh, this is their first release on anything resembling a major label. This was Nuclear Blast back in the early 90s. When oh, wow. Nuclear Blast was really something to get yourself signed up to. Yeah, now it, we won't speak too negatively, but it, it is one you go to the metal section of a you know CD shop. And everything is a Nuclear Blast release. Yeah. 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 It's Nuclear Blast or um, American Recordings. Mm. Relapse Records, if it's kind of crossovery, it'll be on Relapse. Yeah, Nuclear Blast is kind of a name in a different way these days to what it was in the early 1990s. This is also actually the final album, and I only discovered this looking this up, this is actually the final album that was recorded at the Universal Recording Studio in Chicago, which is where the likes of Bo Diddley and Elvis Presley and yeah a lot of like late 50s through like 70s were recording Bill Putnam was the guy that founded Universal Recordings he passed away in 1989 and as I understand it the business folded shortly after him and this was the final of all things this was the final release at uh, Universal Recordings I suppose that probably would have made it perhaps a bit cheaper to record it somewhere that had a pedigree but was going bust. Mm. Maybe. I'm not sure why exactly Nuclear Blast would have picked for them to go there. You'd think they were a band that Nuclear Blast would have picked to put entirely surrounded by people who are really experienced in the death metal world, but maybe their sound was just so far out compared even to the established world of death metal in the early 90s that they kind of didn't really necessarily want to totally surround them with people who are now the experienced breed of behind-the-boards sound guys. Yeah, or maybe they just thought that for the band's aesthetic and sound that using a studio that's less experienced recording extreme metal, that it could create some interesting sonic ideas. Hmm. And if you go through the... This is very much kind of a... If you never listened to the old radio show, it was a lot like a more formal version of this going through and sometimes laser detail the kind of everyone who was involved and in everything the making. that they had done yeah and all and the stuff they had done and trying to pull together all those threads of how an album had been made we're not going to do that with this show and we're not going to do that today but 
I did have a look around at the personnel behind the boards, the producers, sound engineers, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And besides some in-house staff at Universal Recordings and some people from Nuclear Blast itself, I believe the executive producer was not one of the founders of Nuclear Blast, but I believe the founder of their German branch and the head of that for a long time. So a fairly high up person in the company did executive production. But besides some people who were in Nuclear Blast and some people who were at Universal Recordings, there was a few other people involved doing both session work and some behind the board stuff, but they didn't really have any other credits. I couldn't really find anything about them, including a guest vocalist who crops up on track one and 12. So I presume doing that kind of intro spiel in track one who's credited only as scary gary and there's no other info about him which i don't know but it feels very fitting to the band i really want to believe it's just one of the members under a different name <laughs> i want to believe it's ghost mm, mm. like they set up some like emf stuff and pulled out like a ouija board and i think it's a really like a macabre thing i feel like their thing would more be like smuggling recording equipment into a prison cell <laughs> getting like an actual serial killer to record it and then just putting it under a assumed name yeah which is another detail about macabre they aren't just dedicated to this as a theme that they can keep separate from everything else the band is wholly dedicated to the idea of murder to the extent that they've quite famously had correspondence and even met with some imprisoned serial killers, and most notably John Wayne Gacy, who I've read didn't like them very much. <laughs> just thought they were kind of annoying. Um, <laughs> That's so funny. Just kind of the funniest thing to have had to happen out of that meeting. Yeah. But suffice to say, these guys are as neck deep in it as you can really get in terms of focusing on this bloody and grisly side of real life now the band members themselves the thing with macabre is there's not really kind of like a oh this guy was from this band or these people were in this band before they joined or this person went off and did something else the lineup of macabre has been the same since they were founded in 1985 there have been no new additions there have been no people leave it's been the same three guys the whole way through Nefarious, who is the bassist and I believe he's the lead vocalist, although him and the guitarist share a lot of those duties. A guy named Charles Lesevich, he doesn't have really any other credits. The same is true of Dennis the Menace, a guy named Dennis Ritchie, who is the drummer. Corporate Death, who is the guitarist and vocalist, whose name is uh, Lance, and I'm, it's an Italian name, so I might get it a little bit wrong, but Lencioni, I think. He does have some other credits outside of Macabre. It's not many, but he was a member of, of all things, an experimental prog metal band called Java. I had never heard of them, and I'm very curious what the guitar stylings of Macabre are going to sound like in a progressive metal band. Maybe it's a band that leans a lot more on the experimental side. I'll find out when I go home and listen to them. And he's also done some session work for Cephalic Carnage, who are a name in the grindcore world. Um, I think they're one of the few bands I've seen te- uh, credited as technical grindcore. No, I'm not. I'm not a big grind guy, so maybe it's its own entire subscene. But that's the first time I've seen that phrase. And he was also involved with a short-lived '80s death metal act called Dead Youth around the same time as the early days of Macabre as a, a guest musician. 
it kind of adds to this singular focus that the members aren't really people who have done the mercenary musician thing and joined a bunch of bands for different tours and different albums and whatnot. It's not like they've subbed in new people or had people leave. It's been these same three maniacs the whole way through for, at this point, over 35 years, churning out... Not like a super fast turnover of music, but a fairly consistent album, album, album. I believe they have about seven or eight studio albums at this point, as well as like a handful of EPs and singles and things thrown in there as well. So this is like a consistent band in terms of output, in terms of theme, and in terms of the lineup all the way through. And that really adds to their singular obsession with the topic of murder. And that is really it. We had considered doing a band called Church of Misery, who are a Japanese doom metal band that are similarly focused on murder. But even in that case, even though they do kind of the same thing where every single song is about a serial killer or something, and they had a Bloyster Cult cover on their first album, which I thought was great. I think it's a yeah. great cover, and the album is really good. But there is just something about Macabre that gives you the idea that, one, these guys aren't all good, and two, it really means something to them. And to, to contrast this. with Church of Misery as well, Church of Misery at numerous times have had multiple band members leave. Mm. And it's basically just been the bassist that's been left over. He's been the only consistent member. Mm. And I think three or four times there have been the entire rest of the band has just left, which makes me think, what is that bassist doing? (laughs) 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 To constantly be uh, the only one in the band for a period of time. Mm. I don't think I've ever listened to a Church of Misery album and thought this sucks, so... I think I've pretty thoroughly enjoyed all of their albums. So, I mean, he's doing something right, even if he's apparently it would seem horrible to work with while doing it. Yeah. Like you would imagine. I don't yeah. know what else could be the issue. They've got a, um, at the moment for, I think it might be the 20th anniversary, but they've produced a whole lot of their old albums on this beautiful gold colored vinyl. Hell yeah. In each one's only limited to 200 copies. Uh, they came out like a year ago and they're still in stock. Yeah, I believe their first... It's sad to see. I honestly. believe their first album, Master of Brutality, is from 2000. So it would have been the 20th anniversary last year of their first release. But getting back to Macabre, I feel like we should kind of dig into this album. And I picked this album because it's really demonstrative of what you're going to get throughout the entirety of the band's work. They're very consistent. If you wind up liking Macabre, which isn't really a given, but if you do listen to it and it gets its hooks in you, you're not really going to be disappointed, I think, with anything else by the band. I've listened to like a few of their other albums. I listened to their album that came out last year, Carnival of Killers, and they seem very consistent throughout in terms of quality as well. They don't get any less deranged, but they also don't at any point feel like they're just going through the motions. These guys are, they're really dedicated to this. They're in it for the long haul. They are in it for the long haul. So it's not like I could have picked a different album and you would have gotten a somewhat different experience. The only thing that would really feel like that is maybe doing like their first album because it it's a little bit less deranged. <laughs> 
I think. Um, <laughs> it, it at least sounds a little bit more of the time it was made, which is quite early in the world of death metal and especially of like death metal getting EP to album length releases. So maybe that would have been a little less demonstrative. And also the album after this, Dharma, simply because that is a single full concept album about a single killer, Jeffrey Dharma, rather than a different song each time throughout the album having its own individual horrible person. (laughs) But the other thing is that this album, I think, has probably one of the most interesting mixes in terms of the people who these songs are being inspired by and the thing you'll find a lot of the time i don't know if this is necessarily the case on like a hard copy of the album but a lot of the places where you want you look up like the track information there will be the name of the serial killer included at the end of the track name you know to be sure just so you know so This one, if you kind of go through all of the different people who have inspired the tracks on this album, it's a much more mixed bag. It's not just, you know, a run through of the big name, really gross serial killers that, you know, Netflix documentaries are being made for at the moment and have kind of always fascinated people in a grotesque way. There's also people that I had never heard of who had committed just kind of really weird and gross, like, single murders a couple of public mass shooters are in there and it just gives you like a mixed bag it winds up feeling like it's not just this gross look at the particular kind of serial killer whose entire desire is and reason for doing this is because they like doing it and and it's all gross and grisly and it gets that kind of gorehound itch that i think a lot more people have than anyone really likes to think about but you also have these people who kind of do public shootings, which is a lot less of a... It's a lot less grisly compared to the acts of, say, your Ted Bundy or your Jeffrey Dahmer. I'll put it that way. It's it's a much more clean or cut-and-dry kind of violence. Well, for me, I also really appreciated that there are quite a few names that are not so obscure that very few people have heard of them, but they're ones that don't really get talked about as much as the big names and i think there is only one killer that's on the album that is a woman and it's not elaine warnos mm. it's usually her because you know she has this really high body count she was also batshit insane i think it's <laughs> and- more kind of i think people like talk about her a lot more because her life is a bit more a lot more sympathetic it's quite tragic she had a very terrible life so you don't as much want to feel like she's just some grotesque thing in the same way you do with like ted bundy like with ted bundy it's just like this guy just fucking sucked yeah and that's it yeah but also like her her final words before she was executed were just nonsense ramblings completely incoherent yeah talking about jesus christ and something on a starship or whatever but mary bell is the killer that they use instead of the expected alien warnos who was very very young she was 11 years old yeah yeah when she killed her first victim first of two so she's not a serial killer technically Mm. but it was the way that she behaved afterwards basically by taunting the family Mm. of the kids that she killed yeah and she is 
British, if I remember right. I'm pretty sure. I wasn't going to say it just in case she wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I can, <laughs> you know, if, if you're listening to this and, and I got it wrong, I am going to probably check after we record. And if I'm wrong, then I'll just... Edit it in post. Yeah. In which well, no. case, you won't be hearing this discussion. No, I won't edit it in post. I'll leave it in. I, I can take my L's. Oh, yeah. Um, but I believe she's British, and I'm fairly sure that she is a more well-known figure in infamy in Britain than outside of Britain. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of... They have one about the vampire of Dusseldorf, who was one of Germany's worst serial killers, which is... He's another one of those madcap ones where your eyes get too big for your stomach, so to speak. You wind up being like, I wish I didn't read about this. Yeah, he he was deserving of being called a vampire. That guy was a genuine monster. Yeah, and had a really strong recollections of every single crime that he committed didn't he Mm. or am i thinking of somebody else when was he was vampire of dusseldorf he was 20s and 30s i believe yeah quite a while ago thinking of him um he basically sat down the last book that i was able to read was a book about criminal profiling Mm. and sorry peter curtin that's his name it was taking me a second peter curtin was vampire of dusseldorf yeah but he sat down when he was eventually caught and they asked him like okay so tell us about your first killing and he went like oh yeah it was this day they were wearing this this is these are the order of the events that happened Mm. and then he went through every single one recollection in a very great deal of detail yeah he had this huge attention to detail and was able to recall all that information which showed that he was in no way mentally impaired which was a mm. belief for a long time was that people who do these kinds of things are the uneducated and they thought very lowly of them mm. um without thinking about the fact that in the aristocracies there are you know there have been people like Gilles de Rays, the countess bathory etc etc yeah, et yeah people who are like way higher up in, in the society. upper in the upper echelons of their yeah. society in, in that time and place and also quite intelligent mm. but th- this was one of the things that got the ball rolling for criminal psychology Mm. starting to be a worthwhile scientific endeavor Mm. i had brought up the vampire of dusseldorf initially because he's obviously someone who was a lot more well known in germany than out of germany even though it's a fairly well known case but i say that because i'm about to bounce off and say talk about something else entirely (laughs) that you are right to bring that up precisely because still i think something of a misconception today that these are still just regular human beings which is a big part of the slasher genre in the 70s and 80s on the one hand you had some who were these larger than life characters but a lot of them were just regular human beings and that's where the fear came from you could be in your quiet suburban town and not know that there's a monster living next door and that's a i think one of the reasons why serial killers fascinate people so much because it's so far out of what any person would ever conceive of doing at their worst and yet if you just spoke to someone who had done some of these things, who had killed someone or or some people, plural, in cold blood, you might never know. You could just have a regular conversation with them down at the shop. You could bump into them at the dairy and talk about something that's in the paper or complain about the price of smokes. Yeah, many of the killers were community members, like John Wayne Gacy, who was... 
Pogo the clown. Pogo the party clown. Yep. And, you know, was very active in the local community. You know, he was a business owner, wasn't he? He at least gave a lot of people work, but also they were the young men that he would target. Mm. I know it was precisely because he was so well integrated. Yeah. And Into he was the community so well trusted. Yeah. Um, Edmund Kemper as well was uh, very friendly with the police that were investigating his crimes and would talk with them regularly and openly while also concealing the fact that he was the one that was responsible and nobody was any the wiser. Mm. It taps into that idea of domestic horror. Mm. It's it's domestic Uh, horror in real life. It's one of those things I was talking about, how horror can be real. It can be horror is something that is not just a word from fiction that we can use to make allegory with real life, but it's, it's a completely concrete and real thing that happens. I think we should move on to the music itself. Yes. Because this is a, given the kind of grindcore leanings of the band, it's a fairly lean album, 40-odd minutes with about 20 songs, with one track being split in two. I'm pretty sure because it's just a side A, side B thing on the record. That was the one about Mary Bell. That's the one about Mary Bell. It's one of the ones that really gets you out of nowhere. It's this quiet, heartfelt acoustic ballad. And a very, not quite sorrowful, but it's very somber compared to the stylings of even the very first track on the album with what I'm pretty sure is Nefarious's vocals being those wailing highs going completely off the rails uh, throughout the track. Very breathy kind of. Mm. Kind of what you would hear, expect to hear maybe from Diamanda Galas on her deathbed. <laughs> if she tried to do like one final performance. She is the sort of person who would, who would have a one final performance on her deathbed, I think. Yeah, she'd uh, be like be fitting. hooked up to the oxygen tank. And, and still somehow making sounds that no other human can make with their voice. Yeah, and then donating all of the proceeds again to... AIDS research. Oh, yeah. Which she was a very big supporter we for. We stand Diamanda Glass in all of her endeavours. Oh, my God. I love her so much. <laughs> so, you know, we've talked at some length about how there's some more obscure people and some more, like, diversity in here in terms of the subject matter than you would expect. But it does open up with a few of the more well-known names. The first track, Night Stalker, of course, about Richard Ramirez. The second song is literally called The Ted Bundy Song. And the third song, Sniper in the Sky, is about the Texas state shootings. Charles Whitman, the guy in Texas in the late 1960s who stood atop a bell tower and took pot shots into the people below him for an hour and a bit. Whitman's more well-known in the US, but these are all like much more well-known people than some of the ones that turn up deeper in the album. And it is right in those first couple tracks that you just get what you're going to get for the rest of the album. You know that this is going to be a bonkers album through and through with the sudden switch-ups in style between tracks, something that, you know, someone who's not super into the extreme metal world might not really notice. But if you're into that world, you notice that it's kind of jumping genre all over the place, something that sounds a bit more grindcore-y, something that's got a little bit more shred to it, almost like a thrash metal song. And other times you would have death metal, but shotgun blasted through the filter of carnival music. Um, (laughs) And it's right at the start, rather than opening up with some of the quieter or the more, not experimental, but kind of out there tracks 
on the album and i think it's fitting that that also opens up with some of the more well-known names on the kind of list of maniacs that are throughout this album you had a couple favorites didn't you from this one i did vampire of dusseldorf was very good i love the piano that leads into it I can't remember what it's called, but it's kind of like old Western cowboy music. Yeah, um, like honky tonk. Yeah, it's definitely one of the weirder ones. And it's almost got like a nursery rhyme lilt to it as well. Yeah. There was also the two tracks regarding Mary Bell. I think they're brilliantly written. For such a short, because there's like a single verse essentially of vocals. Yeah. And it gets across and it's very simple. Mm. it's a very simple verse but the way it's sung especially in contrast to everything else that's happened so far on the album and that kind of questioning almost sympathetic tone Mary Bell, the child from hell where are you now, are you doing well? It just gets you in a way that the rest of the album doesn't, I think. Yeah, yeah. So that was a real standout. Oh, what else? There was a uh, white hand decapitation. Yeah, yeah, that is definitely one of the more obscure cases. A guy called Michael Bethke. Yeah, I'd never heard of this person Mm, before. I hadn't, because I looked him up, I think, the first time I listened to this album, because I was like, that is a name I don't recognize at all. And it is one of those just one-off cases. Yeah. Where he committed a single murder and the circumstances were very weird and never fully explained. Yeah, and the last one that really stuck out was um, Shotgun Peterson. Mm. There's just a moment in that where you get the bass that comes through. It doesn't come through on the album the whole way through, but in that track there's just a bit more of that bass presence that has this really good you know fuller feel to it that it it was just like one of those shining moments on the album for me Hmm. what were some of your favorites well i think mary bell kind of obviously is the standout track for me just because it contrasts so much to the rest of the album the song about the zodiac killer which is just called zodiac Especially when you get to the end of the album, the end of the song, sorry, and Nefarious is just hitting the absolute 
top of his highs, just completely running out of breath, howling Zodiac, Zodiac. It's just got this feeling of you're kind of hitting as far as he can go with that kind of madcap deranged upper register he has. I really, really enjoy that just for how goddamn far it goes, how far it goes off the rails by the end of that song. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not going to lie. The That high scream that he does took me a couple of songs to get into. That's probably true for most people. Yeah. Just, you know, the first time you hear it, you think, geez, what is that? (laughs) What am I listening to? Is it good? (laughs) But, you know, by the fifth or sixth track, you kind of get used to it. And then then you realize it really fits with just how intense it is and... The the album, if it didn't have it, if it had just a regular high scream, I probably would be lesser for it. You know, this album is still full of a lot of the kind of growly death metal vocals of the early 1990s, especially on the the deeper, heavier, more brutal side of things, rather than that sparkling experimental technical death metal that was floating around at the, around the same time, stuff like Cynic or Believer or Pestilence. But on that darker gruntier side the kind of cannibal corpse school of death metal as it were those vocals are still present throughout the album but i think they work precisely because they're bouncing off of these insane madcap screams throughout the album they're kind of yo-yoing between each other and it's another one of those things that means this album is never boring it's it's constantly changing things on you it's it's constantly moving unlike where you can get like a brutal death album that's as heavy and madcap as you can get but it can kind of hit one note throughout it can kind of get like a certain level of gurgly and then stay there throughout a project which you know the vast majority of all vocalists are going to do that kind of kind of hit their stride and stick with that throughout an album and just kind of change it up as the song needs but with this album it's thrown all over the place everything is being thrown at the wall and somehow all of it sticks I think another one that I quite enjoyed is a song, um, There Was a Young Man Who Blew Up a Plane, which is a play <laughs> on the woman who eats the spider, Yeah, at least in the the songwriting. And one, it, it is one of the more interesting cases, essentially domestic terrorism, but personalized. This guy essentially was trying to inherit money from his mother. And, and had cooked up a plot to kill her, but he planted a bomb in the plane she was traveling on and then booked life insurance in the airport as she was taking off. So, yeah, this guy got caught relatively quickly, unsurprisingly. But the crash, like, killed most of the people on board. Unsurprisingly. Yeah, it, it was something more equivalent to domestic terrorism than the intricacies of an interfamilial kind of murder mystery. It takes it took this enormous grand scale. But they run it through this nursery rhyme um, <laughs> lyrical scheme. It just works really well. Something about it, I think about the fact that it's the son killing his mother for such 
at the end of the day, kind of stupid and greedy reasons. Yeah, it hits on it on that horror trope of using nursery rhymes. The most iconic example being, I was about to call him Freddie Mercury. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The song that the girl sings about (laughs) Freddy Krueger. In Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, about Freddie Mercury in Nightmare on Elm Street. (laughs) Oh, that's a lost future where Freddie Mercury survives and... And, And, like, takes Robert England's place. (laughs) If only. Sorry, go on. But, you know, there's the, the iconic little girl singing one... To Freddy's coming for you. It takes that kind of trope, but it doesn't take it in the same direction of making it creepy, but rather making it bizarre mm. and just keeping it there as if it's entirely normal. Yeah, which, this, this is a band that lives in the Uncanny Valley. Yeah. Got good property right at the bottom of the valley there. Yeah. And they're not leaving. Yeah. Yeah. And also just such a fucking clever idea as a way to write a song. Because one thing I did notice was that a lot of these songs are very literal. Um, Yes. You know, you compare it to other songs about killings. Absolutely not metal, but In Cold Blood by Alt-J. It's theorized that it was about a specific killing at a pool party. A lot of the... You know, lyrics in the song are quite abstract and metaphorical, like cut my somersault, sign my backflip, which who knows what that means. And then um, Jeff's inflatables have sunk to the bottom, which was about a sculpture artist that would make giant balloon animals out of metal. Mm. And, you know, there there are questions about like, oh, which killing is this about? It would be interesting if they released the album with no names attached to it and people had to work out who they were um (laughs) which for a lot of them i don't think would be terribly difficult because of how literal the songwriting is yeah i mean even in the rest of metal hell even even in death metal which is you know extremely blunt when it comes to these kinds of things there's still plenty of bands who go way out abstract and experimental with it and you've kind of got to grope your way back to meaning and even you know the super literal splattery gory ones will at least have a lot more wordplay as it were not that this doesn't but in a different way like be a little bit less literal meaning and a lot more splashing around in the guts as it were yeah whereas with macabre even though there's this childlike wonder <laughs> about everything, which is a really weird way to put it, but it's definitely there. The descriptions of what's happening is, you're right, very, very direct Yeah, in a lot of cases. Yeah, so using that nursery rhyme structure to write the song kind of expands on how they've written these songs Hmm. and you know very literal songs can get quite difficult after an amount of time but they're constantly putting in these things to make an enjoyable listen and it never feels boring and this is just another one of those ways that they did that i do think that there's going to be a point somewhere in the future where they're going to release an album that prominently has a calliope you know those like steamboat organ yeah. pipes <laughs> it's gonna have like a calliope track i feel like that's coming that's coming at some point 
The other thing is that throwing in like carnival music and nursery rhyming schemes, little folk ballads, kind of honky tonk piano at times, all of that would, and especially like the the kind of humorous and deranged way in which they they structure everything and they present the album and and all of the music is would kind of lead you to think that this is just a laugh to them and they don't really care about it but there is something about the specificity of the detail the dedication to only focus on this for an entire decades long career that in spite of everything leaves you feeling like they maybe don't care in a you know a loving way but there's something about this that is very earnestly gripping to them. Yeah. You, I think that when it comes to their album Dharma, which we might do at some point, because given the scope of an entire album, they go into insane detail about his life. There, there are several, like the entire first chunk of the album, there are entire songs just about like his young life about him being a child and and him going to the army and stuff like that before you even get to a song that actually covers him killing people which a grindcore-y death metal-y album about Jeffrey Dahmer you'd expect to be like right from the start but even in that case they kind of take their time to get to it and kind of lay the foundations of who Jeffrey Dahmer was and so you get this feeling that there is definitely something more going on for them this really isn't just a bit for macabre this is something that even if they take it very humorously and strangely is still deathly serious yeah it sounds like dharma was really a character study it almost is i mean like there's like a christmas song on dharma it's still like a (laughs) absolutely bonkers album it still has that gross but too insane to notice the grossness sense of humor to it Mm. like it's just too batshit to really focus on whether or not it's kind of insensitive or just being grisly for grisly's sake so like in that respect it's still very much a macabre album but again just that attention to detail that determination to just keep doing this over and over again and put a great degree of talent and effort into it every single time. At no point are they phoning it in. They're putting so much effort into the songwriting and the degree of insanity in every single one of these albums. So I, yeah, I, I really feel like there, there's definitely more to Macabre than a bunch of guys who like murder. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me. Because it seems a lot of, you know, most long-term metal bands with careers as long as theirs, at some point they catch the groove bug. Did they ever catch they the never, groove did, bug? They, this has been, they, they've been consistent throughout. This like, is officially a pro-Tyler career. Yeah, this is especially a, a, a pro-me career. There's there's no deviations into groove metal or new metal or alternative metal or, like industrial but bad this is you know it's it's very consistent throughout but the, it is it should be said that they only released like two albums in the 1990s they didn't have a consistent enough release schedule i think right to have time to catch the groove bug yeah it, there's definitely like a long time comparatively between it's always like a few years at least sometimes up to six or seven years i think dharma if i remember right came out 
1998-99 so if they were going to catch the groove bug that kind of would have been when to do it but Dharma's just as madcap and macabre as every other macabre album and they really have kind of like earned giving themselves a one band genre moniker because there's just nothing that sounds like them (laughs) you can look but there's there's just going to be nothing there for you to find and there's plenty of madcap and weird and bizarre death metal out there but none of it quite sounds like macabre They've really... Hollowed out a niche. They've hollowed out the strangest of niches. Mm. And I mean, like, I can think of other one-band genre things, like Tankard, the the alcoholic metal (laughs) band. But they they have musically a very much thrash metal and kind of late 80s heavy metal. You can find other bands that musically sound close enough to Tankard that they work together on a playlist or something. That's not the case with Macabre. Even a band like Gua, who have a very weird sound, if you try and just isolate the sound of the band rather than the band going out of their way to try and gross you out, there isn't really that much that sounds exactly like Gua, but you can find other bands like Green Jello that give you the same kind of vibe and have the same oddball approach to to heavy metal. But Macabre really are just out there on their own. It's really worth a listen. It is worth a listen. I kind of wish we covered this album during our first show Dharma was on the list and when Carnival of Killers came out I considered switching it to that I did consider us doing Carnival of Killers because that one befitting the name really goes heavy on the carnival music sides of oh, things oh hell yeah Yeah, it, that's another one that is uh, just like any other macabre album but that one especially um, is a quite an oddball listen if you're like trying to introduce someone to death metal I don't think I'd really pick macabre first they're an acquired taste <laughs> Yeah, definitely. We didn't want to go overboard with this one and have the kind of length we have had for the past couple of episodes. Because those have been monstrous. Yeah, what you wind up listening to on those episodes is, at least for the first one, I can guarantee more than an hour less content than was originally recorded. (laughs) Um, But... With this, I think we should just kind of leave it on a final word. I mean, music-wise, I think we've sung Macabre's praises enough. They're such a strange band that, at least on that basis alone, they're interesting and worth a listen. The strange is kind of glorious. Yeah, and their singular dedication to murder and bloody personalised mayhem is kind of astounding for just how long they've managed to keep it up and the sheer consistency of it but I do want to just kind of like as a a closing thing because I picked this because it's a good introduction to the kind of why do real life horrible things fascinate us and the big one right now and for a long time is serial killers there's plenty of documentaries on Netflix and whatnot. They're getting all sorts of acclaim. Yeah, Serial Killer Sunday on CI. Yep. Born to Kill covers a whole lot of these people and a whole lot of people that are probably on other albums and probably didn't make it on any albums. And Slashers in the 70s and 80s were clearly not really an homage to serial killers, but took a lot from the kind of fears that serial killers evoked try and present like similar characters on the screen and then when you jump to the 2000s the kind of serial killer e vibes came back in a big way in horror especially in the wake of saw 
because everyone kind of yeah. wanted to be sore for a while. And there's a significant degree to which Saw is kind of just philosophizing a serial killer and trying to get into the head of, of one who thinks that there's like a, a genuine cause to why they do it. So like the specter of the serial killer and its fascination for us has been there for a long time. So I kind of picked this album as a way to kind of introduce that into the show because I, I think it's a theme that we'll, we're going to wind up touching on again. But just for this album, do you have any like... Any final thoughts <laughs> about just why why is it sticky for us? You know, why does it stick to us so much? Why does why does this serial killer in this gross and grisly album why is it so fascinating to us? Well, it's difficult to contribute something more that hasn't been said. You know, true crime is a serious fascination for us among many other people. And nothing presents serial killers in the same way that this does one thing that is noticeable is that there is not too often a statement positive or negative it's quite objective a lot of the time Mm. i found which makes for a very interesting you know with a medium that deals a lot with subjectivity and definitely Serial killers are another topic that deals with subjectivity and, you know, people described as being pure evil and the number of documentaries and stuff that will use in the name uh, qualifier like evil. That not being there is really interesting. But yeah, it's it's kind of hard to to say something more that we haven't really already Mm. said the album is so good and the subject is so fascinating that it's you know it's just gonna draw us back i'm certain macabre will come up again especially if we do another if we if we return to death metal i imagine we might i feel like there are going to be at least a few episodes here and there that feel a lot like the old radio show then yeah i feel like macabre gonna come back there's this almost third person feeling to macabre they kind of just like describe a story or ask one of these people something whereas cannibal corpse or an autopsy or something like that it's just going to kind of be like a first person gore fest doing something and and the song being the kind of active participant rather than taking this bird's eye view as you say over the proceedings you know mary bell ends with asking her if she's doing well where is she now what's happening in her life and the song about james Pugh, the full name is james Pugh. what the hell did you do (laughs) and that's the chorus line it's asking him james Pugh, what the hell did you do we want to know yeah it's just a it's a very interesting framing that you don't hear that often i think we're going to leave it at that we have been haunting the studio we will be haunting the studio again. Yeah, we have been, we are, and we will again haunt the studio. Jump in with us next time. I'm not sure what the next episode is going to be. And to leave you with a final thought, why do serial killers fascinate you? Are you fascinated by them? Why do they fascinate you? Maybe you just think about it.
All of our content lives online at r1.co.nz.